So what question does your life raise? You know, as we think about these Christians in Iran, uh, their, their lives, they raise the question. People wonder about the hope that they have. Um, but everyone's life raises some kind of a question in one way or another. I was struck by the, even driving here this morning, is continuing to hear the remembrances of Nelson Mandela's life. And, and the question of, of what gave him such persistence um, in the face of so much opposition. His life raised a question. And whether famous or not, whether persecuted or not, every one of us is, is known for something. Everyone's life raises a question about what's important to us, about what drives us, what, what comforts us. So what question does your life raise? What are you known for? What do people, when they look at your life, family members, classmates, friends, coworkers, what do they wonder about? What questions come to mind when they think about you, about your life? What are they asking? Do they wonder about your success as a student or as an athlete? Do they wonder about your skill as a parent or your achievements in your vocation? What is it about you that people are curious to know more about? What is it that comes to their minds when they think about you? What question does your life raise in their minds? Well, in this passage that we looked at this morning that uh, Jael read for us, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians in the Roman Empire, and he tells his readers that they should be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in them. And the question for us is, are we being asked? If you're a Christian, ask yourself, does my life elicit curiosity about the hope that I have? What question does your life raise? And Peter's point in this passage is that Christians are called to live such good and hopeful lives, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, that people can't help but ask about the reason for their hope. And so this morning, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, um, and again, it's on page 1016 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to ask four questions of this text. text. First of all, uh, are you be, or why are you asked? Why do people ask? Secondly, what do you say when you're asked? Third, how do you say it? And then finally, is this really possible? So first, why are you asked? What do you say? How do you say it? And then at last, is this really possible? So Peter says that we need to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks about our hope. So the first question we need to ask then is why are you asked? Why do people ask? What prompts people to ask you about the hope that you have in Christ? Well, we see a little bit of the answer here in verses 13 and 14. Take a look there where Peter writes this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. So the reason that people ask about our hope is that we live in Christ and have the goodness and, and such goodness and righteousness on display, even in the midst of suffering, that people wonder about how can you live such a good life even in this kind of context. And that little word good is a really key word all throughout the book of 1 Peter. In fact, it occurs in one form or another over 13 times in these middle three chapters of this short letter. Here are just a few examples. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14 Peter writes, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of selfish, foolish people. Then later in, in 2 verse 20, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 3, 6, you are Sarah's children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Down to three ten, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, 
Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do good. Later on, chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore let all who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So goodness in this context of Peter's writing means meeting a high standard of, of worth, of merit, of virtue and character. Peter is calling his readers, that's you and me, uh, to live faithfully and fully into the life of wholeness, of virtue, of consistency that we are given in the gospel and in Christ. He says if we're zealous, that is if we are passionately pursuing that sort of life of goodness, he says who is there to harm you? Peter says Christians ought to be the best citizens. They have to be the best employees, the, the most faithful, reliable volunteers, the best neighbors. That if you're living this kind of virtuous life, Peter says, who is there to harm you? But Peter is also realistic. <laughs> if we are these kind of people, ideally there should be no reason for people to mistreat us. But Peter and the rest of the Bible, for that matter, doesn't just deal with the ideal realm. It deals with the reality that we actually face. Peter's deeply um, realistic and yet also hopeful about the realities that followers of Jesus face. Peter knows that sometimes even when you live rightly and justly, you are not treated right <laughs> or with justice. And so he echoes Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon in Matthew chapter 5. And he says, But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now that little phrase, even if you should suffer, actually reveals a lot about the situation of Peter's original readers. The tense that Peter uses of the, of the verb indicates that the suffering is a real possibility, but generally speaking, it's not yet a present one. It's, it's, it's a possibility, but it's not yet a present one. And this is where Peter's original readers, and you and I, have a lot in common. From the best that we can tell, Peter's readers have yet to face real intense persecution or suffering for their faith. This is probably before Nero began the great persecution in the Roman Empire. Now, this isn't to say that their lives have been easy, um, but relatively speaking, the intensity has been fairly low. But Peter is warning them that the time of more intense persecution may be coming. And he wants them to be prepared for suffering, for doing what is right, even in the sense of, of doing uh, what is right and suffering for that. And this should make all of us sit up and pay attention, because this is exactly where most of us live, right? That we aren't facing a, a time of intense persecution um, for our faith, uh, but we should always be preparing for the times when we might I recently saw this flowchart, and I, as I put this up on the slide, I, I don't know how well you actually be able to read this. I'll read it for you. But it was uh, someone had kind of written a blog post about, are you being persecuted? And it says at the top, does someone threaten your life, your safety, your civil liberties, or your right to worship? And it's yes or no. If, if yes, then you are being persecuted. That's the folks in Iran. If no, it says then, did someone wish you a happy holidays? And then both boxes say yes or no. Either case, you're not being persecuted. So just someone, you know, this just kind of helps put things in perspective, right? If you, you know, risk being wished a happy holiday isn't quite persecution. Now, in poking fun at that, I'm not saying that the preservation of our civil liberties and all that isn't important. But when we get all worked up about happy holidays, do people really wonder about the, the hope that is in us? Or do they wonder about the fear or the anger? What question does your life raise? 
I mean, you and I aren't facing persecution of the intensity uh, that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are, certainly not those in Iran anywhere near that we are. But Peter says we need to be prepared. And as we look at where we're at in the world today and in our society, because people are made in the image of God, everyone gets part of the story right. Which means that Christians should expect, if we're living this lives of virtue and goodness, that we should have a lot of common ground with the societal definitions of good and virtue. For instance, when, as Christians, we can work together with all kinds of people uh, on the issues of human rights and justice for the oppressed, right? We, ca- we share in common those, those values of goodness. But there are also times when following the gospel, when society will disagree with Christians' understanding of what the good and the flourishing life is. For instance, around sexual ethics. In fact, in fact, Peter points in chapter 4, verse 4, that Christians are maligned because they don't go along with certain societal norms. He writes in, in 4, verse 4, that they in the broader society are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. And yet Peter says this situation is one of blessings. And blessing means that God's showing you favor. What did, that's what, kind of a Christian term, a church term, but blessing means that God is showing you his favor. So how is being heaped abuse upon you, being maligned, how is that a sign of God's favor? Well, if you weren't following Christ, you wouldn't be maligned in these ways. And so that maligning, that abuse, is actually a reminder of the fact that you have been rescued in Christ, and that is a blessing. You have hope in the gospel. So what prompts people to ask you about your hope? Well, Peter says it's the whole sacrificial good life that you live, even in the face of abuse and suffering. But there are two important things to keep in mind here. First, that in order for people to ask you about the reason for your hope, you have to be in proximity to people who don't know the reason for your hope. If, if people aren't asking you for the reason for your hope, it, it may be that you aren't displaying much goodness or hope. That's, let's not rule that as a possibility. But could it be that many of us aren't being asked about the reason for our hope because we are rarely in meaningful relationships with people who don't know the reason for our hope? And I confess, as a pastor, I'm all too often guilty of this, of not devoting time to developing meaningful relationships with people who don't yet know the hope of the gospel. So are you in meaningful relationships where people don't yet know the hope, where they ask about the hope? This is why as a a church, as, as a people, we can't take a separationist approach to culture. We need to be in meaningful contact with people who don't know Jesus in such a way that they see our lives, even in midst of hardship and suffering, and wonder about the hope that we have. Which brings me to the second thing we need to keep in mind. In order for people to ask about the reason for our hope, we will probably have to face some adversity, right? Because when everything is going great in your life, people don't typically wonder why you're so hopeful. If you've got a great job, um, if your kids are well-behaved, if you're healthy, if everything's going your way, um, people don't typically wonder, man, I wonder why he's so hopeful. It's only when the obvious reasons for being hopeful begin to be stripped away that people begin to ask It's in the moments when those obvious reasons for hope have disappeared that people begin to wonder about the reason for your hope. And this adversity could be something big like cancer or persecution. 
But you can also display hope by maintaining a good attitude and working in a, a corporate structure with lots of cynicism and cynical coworkers. Or by having patience and joy as you face life with a newborn. <laughs> Either way, whether the adversity is big or small, questions about hope come in situations where despairing or at least complaining would be the expected response. So how do you respond even in small moments of suffering? <laughs> the fridge breaking down, or, or this morning I went to make coffee and the coffee maker wasn't working. Uh, you know, those kind of things. Where, the kids acting out, the car dying. What question does your life raise in those moments? Okay, so we've looked at why people ask. But now that we have asked that question, the next question is, okay, great, now people are asking about my hope, but now what do I say? <laughs> That's what Peter shows us in the next couple of verses here. Take a look at at verse 14 at the end. Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. When people ask Christians about their hope, the first thing that Peter says they need to do here is there's two things. First, they need to give a reason for the hope, and then a defense of that reason. So what is the hope that Christians have? What is the reason for our hope? And Peter reminds us of this at the very beginning of his letter in chapter 3, verse 1. This is the hope that Christians have. He writes, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed the last time. You see, our hope as Christians is centered on the person of Jesus Christ, who God in his mercy offered as a sacrifice for sin so that through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, sin might be forgiven and death could be defeated. And therefore, we look forward to a great hope to the future because we have an inheritance that cannot be spoiled, that is defended by the very power of God who will rescue us. And this is the reason for Christians have such an immovable, unsinkable hope. And if you're sitting here this morning as a Christian, you probably felt something when I described that hope that we have in the gospel. But if you're here this morning and you're just beginning to explore who Jesus is, or if you're here this morning and and maybe you came with a spouse or with a friend and and you're actually a little bit skeptical about the church, um, you don't even really know that much about the Bible— When you listen to that description, you might have been maybe just a little bit confused, maybe even a bit put off. And that's why it's not just enough to give a reason for the hope that we have, Jesus rose from the dead, but also to give a defense why you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and and why that matters. You see, when I stated the reasons that Christians are so hopeful above, I didn't define any terms. I didn't offer any explanations about who God is, why mercy is necessary, why Jesus died and rose again. You see, as Christians, we need to give the reason for our beliefs and actions in a way that people who aren't Christians can understand and find meaningful. This means kind of avoiding Christianese or kind of internal language. It means that you define terms as you're talking about the gospel. It also means presenting Christianity in such a way that the person you're talking with finds him or herself wanting it to be true, even if they don't yet believe it to be true. Let me say that again. It means presenting the gospel in such a way that that people find themselves wanting it to be true, even if they don't yet believe it to be true. 
This means not only defining terms, but also showing, and this is, Tim Keller puts it this way, how hope for rescue in this gospel that all of the fairy tales come true. That in the gospel is the one true myth. It's what C.S. Lewis says, it's myth become fact. It's the one place where all of the true, all the stories that we thought were just fairy tales, they actually come true in the gospel. You think about all the, the fairy tales that we, that we grew up with, the, the story of Beauty and the Beast, of the unconditional love of one person transforming an ugly person into a beautiful person. This is the story of the gospel, right? Of, of Christ's love for us transforming we who are ugly into beautiful creatures that he made us to be. You think about the story of, of, of Sleeping Beauty. Those of us who are trapped in the, the death of, of sleep, of sin, of having a prince who comes to rescue us and bring us to life again. All of the stories... All of the stories that touch us most deeply, they find their full and true expression in the gospel. All of our deepest longings come true there. So are you growing in your understanding of the living hope you have? As Christians, we must saturate ourselves in this hope. Whenever you read the Bible, as you're going through reading through Open Here, this is our, our plan to help us develop this habit of daily Bible reading. Each day, ask the question, what is, how does this passage this morning that I'm reading shine light on the hope that I have in Christ? Are we bathing ourselves in hope? And are you growing in your ability to speak about your hope winsomely and persuasively? A good place to start is to read a, a, a good book like uh, Mere Christianity or Reason for God by Tim Keller. But even more than reading, the one way to really grow in this is just to begin having conversations with people and trying and failing. Just It takes a lot of practice to speak well about our faith. And it's okay. People are going to raise questions that you're not going to know how to answer. But rather in those moments be, than becoming afraid, just... I don't, I don't know. Let's find out together. And remember this too. The best apologetic that you have is your own story, your own life. I mean, people can question an argument. They can question a, a passage of scripture. But it's hard for people to question your story, to, to argue with your story. So just share your life, how, how the gospel has transformed you, the difference that it's made in your life, how it's made you new. So that's what we say. But then how do we say it? I think many of us know, most of us know, that, that what we say is important, but that how we say it is just as important. And, and a few years ago, uh, Crest Toothpaste ran, ran a— uh, oh, Sorry, I'm, I'm a little tired. Um, <laughs> Crest Toothpaste ran a series of ads uh, a few years back that really highlighted this. I wanted to show you this. Um, that, that just shows us that what we say is—or how we say it is just as important as what we say. It's a prenup. Are you joking? Mm -mm. This is my lawyer. We have a lawyer? Oh, he's my lawyer. <laughs> is it because I'm so much better looking than you? No, it's because my family is so much richer than yours. We just don't trust you, Karen. You can say anything with a smile. Um, maybe not quite that extreme, but it's a reminder that the, our demeanor, that we can say, 
even the toughest news, if we say it in the right way, right? And so how do we say it? Peter's point here is that not only what we say is important, but how we say it. So first Peter tells us that we're to give a reason for our hope, but then he says we're to do it without fear and with gentleness and respect. He not only tells us what to say, but how to say it. Notice in verse, uh, down there, in verse, a couple of verses down, he says, um, he quotes actually Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, and he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, it's important to remember that just being, being troubled isn't a sin. Um, the same word that Jesus, that Peter uses here, um, Jesus used to describe Jesus multiple times in the gospel. The question we need to ask ourselves is, what is the source of that feeling of, of troubledness or fear? Back in the context of Isaiah, where Peter is quoting from, Isaiah is telling the people that the Lord is with them. They were facing oppression from the nations that were trying to conquer them, and Isaiah says, the Lord is with you. Don't be afraid of the nations. Rather, fear God. Put your trust in him. And Peter quotes that verse to his readers to say the same thing to them. Fear God, not the ones who oppose you. And this is why Peter immediately points us back to Jesus, telling us to set him apart as holy, that is to revere him, to fear him. You talked to, I love how Vahid said that in the video, that I'm not afraid of anyone. One commentator puts it this way, he says, the alternative to fear is to focus attention on someone else. To reverence Christ as Lord means to really believe that Christ, not one's human's opponents, is truly in control of events. So when we begin to fear others, we place our attention back on Christ. So we're to say it without fear. And and then positively, we're to say it with gentleness and respect, reasonably. And Peter says to give a, a reason for our hope. And that word reasons, the Greek word logos, is where we get our word logic from. Um, and so we're to do this in a way that's thoughtful, that's reasonable, as, as Christians are called to be thoughtful people. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this in Mere Christianity. This is one of my favorite passages. Lewis writes, It is of course quite true that God will not love you any less or have any less use for you if you happen to have born with a very second-rate brain. Now, compared to Lewis, most of us have been born with a very second-rate brain. But he says he has room for people with very little sense, but he wants every one of us to use the sense we have. God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, Lewis says, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But this isn't a call to argue at people with logic. Far from it. Because Peter continues at the end of verse 15, he says, You do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What Peter is saying here is that Christians are to approach other human beings, even ones who disagree with them, even ones who are persecuting you, in the same way that you approach God himself with humility and respect because they bear God's image. Every person you speak with is an image bearer of God who Jesus loves enough so much so that he was willing to die for them. So treat them with gentleness and respect. They bear the very image of God. In other words, Peter is saying that our our conduct is as important as our content when we give a reason for the hope that we have. So are you becoming the right sort of person in Christ? 
You see, responding to, with gentleness and respect to people who are disagreeing with you, who are angry at you, who are causing you to suffer, isn't something that can just kind of be conjured up in the moment. When you are suffering, when you are facing hardship, it's what's deep inside of you that comes out. So are you cultivating a, a deep sense of gentleness and respect even when you're not suffering? So that when you are, that's what wells up from within you. Are you becoming more like Christ? Remember that being comes before doing. That who we are shapes what we do. So are you growing in Christ's likeness? Is the fruit of the Spirit being produced in your life of, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control? You see, when you couple compelling reasons with gentleness and respect, the hope that is in you shines brilliantly. I mean, think about some of the most winsome and persuasive uh, communicators of the gospel in our, in our day, whether Billy Graham or, or C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller or others. They don't only just know arguments. They aren't just persuasive at a logical level, but they do it with such gentleness and respect that people are eager to hear. What question does your life raise? What question does your life raise? Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, Bill, this seems like a lot. I'm not sure this is really possible to live a life that compels people to ask about my hope and then have answers to give them all while suffering and facing hardship. I, I'm just not sure if I'm really capable of that. But this is where we need to pause and remember that our hope is a who, not a what. Our hope is a who, not a what. You see, God's gentle defense to us is a baby born in a manger, destined to suffer. You see, ultimately, Christians don't offer airtight arguments. They offer an airtight person. They don't offer airtight arguments. They offer an airtight person. Peter writes, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So who is this person? Who is this person? Peter tells us two things here. First, this person is a person who may will that you suffer. Did you catch that in the text? He says that it, it is better to suffer for doing, God, do, doing good if that should be God's will. It's possible that God's will for us includes suffering at times. And, and the point here is that God's will is that we would do what is right, that we would remain faithful to Christ, even if that means that we should suffer as a result. But the good news here, as commentator Karen Jobs puts it, is that Christian suffering is not determined by the will of one's adversaries, but by the will of one's heavenly Father. Let me say that again. Christian suffering is not determined by the will of one's adversaries, but by the will of one's heavenly Father. And second, and this is key, this person is one who has suffered to end all suffering. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the good news of the gospel. God is sovereign in suffering, but he doesn't stand apart from it. He's gone into the very heart of suffering on the cross. The righteous one dying for the, and suffering for the unrighteous ones. That's you and me. He's taking the suffering that we deserve so that we can then come to God, so that we can come to the one who made us and loves us and has given himself for us. 
because of the cross and death and resurrection of Jesus, suffering now has an expiration date. Peter writes at the end of his letter, in chapter 5, verse 10, and after you have suffered for a little while, And after you have suffered for a little while, suffering now has an expiration date. The glory, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It is that hope that we celebrate in communion every week here. It's that hope that that nourishes us to be able to stand firm, to be able to give a response, a reason, a defense with gentleness and respect.